Welcome to another episode of Dialogues with me, Richard Reeves. My guest today is Anne-Marie Slaughter, who is the CEO of the think tank New America, uh, a long-standing foreign policy expert, formerly worked in the State Department under Hillary Clinton, known to many people, I think, for her breakout essay in The Atlantic in 2012, almost 10 years ago, with the title, Why Women Still Can't Have It All, which talked about the trade-offs that we have in our current society between care and and paid work. And that led to uh, a book, Unfinished Business, Women, Men, Work and Family. So we talk about some of those issues about women, men and gender equality. Where are we now? And what's the, the future of, of feminism? But we also based the conversation around her latest book, which is called Renewal, From Crisis to Transformation in Our Lives, Work, and, and Politics. I describe Anne-Marie uh, as an optimist, uh, as a patriot. In fact, patriot is the first word in her Twitter bio, and an advocate for both personal and national renewal. So we dig into the difference, as she sees it, between renewal and both reinvention, which means out with the old, and restoration, which means bring back in all the old, and, and what that means for our politics as well as personal development. Um, we also talk about the need for more grace in our both our personal lives and perhaps especially in our, our public lives and why that means we should be calling people in rather than calling people out, which means doing it in private rather than public and, and allowing at least a little bit of benefit of the doubt as we all grapple with the, the new challenges that we face. We'll talk about the reckoning around racial justice, the uh, preparations that she's involved in, uh, preparing for the 250th anniversary uh, of the Declaration of, of Independence. Um, we also conclude with a discussion on the unique power of women after the menopause. So it's as broad ranging as, as the book. Uh, I really enjoyed it. I hope you do too. Anne-Marie, welcome to Dialogues. I'm delighted to be here. Thanks for coming on. We're going to talk about uh, your book and maybe a little bit about your previous book and your work. But um, for those people who, who don't know you, uh, who probably do know you from some, some of your work, and they may well know you from the work you did on work-life balance and that sort of the, I guess, famous Atlantic essay that you did on <laughs> why women can't uh, have it all. But for, for those who don't know, I guess you have a bit of a sketch, particularly of the the arc of the last you know couple of decades, I think, kind of, of your career because you've gone from sort of very in the heart of government to think tanks to becoming more of a kind of cultural commentator and then obviously ran into some some interesting challenges at new america which you run and i've just uh, said that but tell us a little just give a sketch of your own yeah your own arc i guess for the last couple of decades so i've had a number of different lives really i spent 12 years as a law professor teaching international law and civil procedure uh, at Harvard Law School and, and Chicago before that. And then I spent uh, seven to eight years as a dean of uh, the Princeton School of uh, Public and International Affairs, formerly the Woodrow Wilson School. So I moved to policy. And I had always thought of myself as somebody who wanted to do foreign policy. Law had always been a means to that. So those first 20 years were at least in the area that I always assumed I would be in. I'm half Belgian. I've always been between cultures. Went into government, worked for Hillary Clinton for two years as director of policy planning, still firmly in foreign policy and, mm -hmm. and in government, which I'd always wanted to do. The real change comes uh, in 2013 when I left the academy. I left Princeton and really the academy completely to take over New America 
And that was in part because I wrote this article in The Atlantic in 2012, Why Women Still Can't Have It All, that really was an argument that said, I have everything. I have a great husband. I have money. I have every advantage. And yet, as a very ambitious woman, I've made a choice in favor of my family. Uh, And if somebody like me can't make it work, uh, then we we still have a long way to go uh, until we do. That went viral, uh, put me suddenly in front of audiences across the nation and really around the world talking about gender equality, even though I, I certainly had no academic training in, in gender studies. And I also felt strongly that the United States was quite badly broken. Our educational system, our infrastructure, uh, rising inequality, and all this was 2013 when, in retrospect, mm. things looked pretty good. So New America is more domestic than foreign, although I still write on foreign policy. And I also became a nonprofit leader, which is hard. <laughs> Anybody who does it knows, you know, it's a lot of fundraising it is management, but not like private sector management. It really, at least for a think tank, a lot of very independent thinkers, scholars, writers. But it's also a way of trying to figure out how to have real impact in the world, which is not obvious. Uh, when you're in the academy, you write books. That's what you do. Uh, but if you're in the think tank world, you're really trying to, to move ideas to action. So it's been quite a journey. I've been at New America for eight years. I love the work that I do. Um, I have definitely had to learn how to be a leader in a rapidly changing time. And that's one of the big themes, perhaps the running theme through your most recent book is the the challenges of leadership and some of your own uh, experiences of that. But I, I think the the one of the reasons why the work you did which was outside of your space around parenting work-life balance was because you were expressing the old adage that the personal is political mm-hmm. uh, but also that the, politi- the political is personal and the 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 need for a change in big changes in structures which you've been arguing for all along is is what's necessary to e- even get any of the things that we we've kind of been speaking about so Essentially, the world, we're not going to change the world of work or the care infrastructure or anything. We're just going to give women the same opportunities as men and give them the opportunity basically to live the way men have always done without men really changing, without work really changing. Uh, and then wonder why it doesn't kind of pay off. And in some ways, it was, sort of a, it was a cri de coeur, I think, uh, at that moment, because you did, you combined your personal experience with uh, the politics of it, really, the structural, the lack of structural change that we've seen in the labor market in particular, I think, alongside this transformation in women's lives is really striking. I think you really put your finger on that. Yes, and and it was a an epiphany for me. As I wrote in the Atlantic article, I had been one of the women who had you know been determined to stay in the workforce and I had a smaller and smaller number of friends who had succeeded in doing that. We'd all intended to, and slowly people made these choices. And I had really been of the view that it's just a question of wanting it enough or, you know, really being determined or committed enough. And when, you know, I had a pretty ordinary family 
crisis. I mean, the fact that you have a teenager who is having a bumpy time is not, there are many, many worse things than that. But suddenly I realized, wait a minute, these two things can't be squared. And if that's true for me, and I had no doubt about my own ambition, then I need to rethink. And suddenly I looked around and saw all these women who were sort of being blamed for not <laughs> you know, wanting it hard enough or being organized enough. And instead, as you said, it you you cannot get gender equality without changing just about everything because our work systems are still set up for a world in which workers, certainly really any workers, have somebody else doing the care. And Yeah, the invisible spouse. Is, the invisible uh, spouse. Uh, Heather Boucher, I think, has written, and you've <laughs> yes. written about this too. Yes. Um, yeah, I think I think that's right. And also, it and you speak quite a bit about this in, in the book, is the shift from an individualistic ethos to a more community-based one. And and I think a fair criticism of that strand of feminism, let's let's call it that, was it was very focused on the individual. It was very focused on individual empowerment. It was very focused on what you need to do. Um, and, and I think had some of the same flaws as all individualistic philosophies do, which is it just doesn't recognize the context and the structure within which you do it. And I think now now I would kind of characterize your position as one which is which balances the idea of what the individual needs to do and responsibility with the the structures. But looking back, do you think that's that's fair of the sort of you, Hillary, that strand of feminism, which is all about you know to put it, you go girl, it would be a yes. sort of one with the sort of younger. It's all about empowerment. You can do everything. You're superwoman. You're etc. And anything you can't do is just because you're not adopting the right pose. You're not eating the right thing. You're not working out enough. It, it always comes back to you, right? It does. <laughs> so, whereas now, I think you're much less individualistic. Is that a fair summary of your move? I think that's right. I think more broadly, I am now willing to say what I think much more honestly than I would have before. So I was definitely socialized to make it like a man, right? In other words, and you had to. I don't fault the women who, particularly the women 10 years ahead of me or my own generation, there was not, there were not enough women in power. The, our gains were too tenuous to actually call for bigger changes. It, it had been so hard to break into our father's world that it you can't blame us for acting like our fathers. And I honestly think men, particularly in the United States, not everywhere, but but particularly in the United States, men are completely socialized to be individualists, right? (laughs) You know, they, they are the, the kind of rugged individualism. Whereas I think many of them are very unhappy in that frame. Women adopted it and really were, I were taught to look down on the kind of more caring, solidaristic, uh, interconnected or interdependent side of our lives. I now think, speaking as a, as a person who's a woman, but, but simply as a person that most of us have a caring side and a competitive side. Most of us need to connect to others as much as we need to define our individual goals and where, where specific people fall on that spectrum can be a matter of many things, but this notion that human beings are defined, you know, like 
economic rational profit maximizers is just silly. It's it's at best half of human nature. Yes, and it's not it's not what happens. I was struck by this research I was looking at that showed that the more economic power women had, the less likely they were to go back to work very quickly after having yes. a child, even though the opportunity cost of doing so was obviously much higher. And I, there was, I quoted this before, but the, what the, the, one of the lead economists was, said something like, you know, this is kind of ir- economically irrational. There must be some other utility function within the <laughs> yeah. household that's going on. And I said, yeah, and it's called wanting to look after your kids. Um, and it's sort of like, yes. And, and actually, the uh, the OECD uh, does all these reports sometimes where they look at kind of all the lost productivity from all these Dutch women um, you know, having coffee with their friends and stuff, and they're sort of constantly frustrated by it. And obviously there's a, a real risk here of kind of getting gendered, but I'm struck by this. There's something that a colleague of mine said. It's like one of those moments where you really learn from the views of others, where there's this young black woman with a, a lot of other young white women uh, in our team and they were talking about we're talking about these issues around gender and childcare. And she said something like, "You know what? There's a lot of black women who really wish they had the opportunity to stay at home with their babies." Absolutely. Because all these white women have been talking about it, saying, so like, "Well, you know, you got to be careful about gender." Blah blah blah. And she's like, "I know a lot about it. So we'd love that option. Thank you very much." Right? And you could see the white women were like, "Um, interesting." Because that's not kind of in line with the version of feminism we talked Precisely. about before. But she was like, because of course that's not an option that black women have. And I think you're you're at pains to kind of draw out those distinctions too, which is a kind of I think there's a really strong recognition in your work now of the need to be intersectional, to use that kind of current term of art, around class and race and gender. And so you have this issue about you actually do this nice story about, but you know, who do we speak for? I think you're at Barnard, right? And this question of who do we speak for? Where where have you landed in terms of who you think you can speak for as a woman, as, as a feminist? Um, because I think there are, and you face this, you actually had this petition, you described, you, know, you should tell the story. But, but it's a very interesting challenge, I think, for somebody like you to figure out when you can speak for others and when you can't. So how, how do you think about drawing that line now? Mm, yes. So my education in intersectionality came again when I was giving talks after uh, the publication of my Atlantic article, which is almost a decade ago now. And I had a very basic white feminist, uh, the feminine mystique understanding of feminism, which is, you know, women were at home with their children and they were not allowed to develop their full potential as whatever they wanted to be, and they wanted to be in the workforce. And I remember very early on someone saying, that is an affluent white woman's vision of feminism. Working women, and certainly black women, uh, worked pretty much all the way through, right? Taking care of other people's uh, children or cleaning other people's houses. And I remember when Michelle Obama said that she was going to be mom-in-chief, and there was exactly the the kind of dismayed reaction that you just described. Mm. And she was very clear that that what was the matter with wanting to be a terrific mom? So and that that is coming from the perspective of women who've had to work when they perhaps did not uh, want to. I now am very careful when I say we and I continually qualify it, which is troubling in some ways, I and mean, we can all slice and dice ourselves in ways so that we never have a broader we. I think we can have both. But it's a way of reminding myself 
that I am speaking for a narrow slice and also telling others that I understand I'm not speaking for them. But the story you referenced was where I was asked to be the commencement speaker at Barnard uh, to win the Barnard Medal. And a number of the undergraduates protested uh, because Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie, who's a spectacular novelist, Hmm. was also going to get an honorary degree and they wanted her. And I thought she was fabulous, but I thought that I could speak for women who don't look or live like me. And I framed my commencement address in those terms. And I was thinking about democracy. I mean, Hillary Clinton was running and I thought, you know, we we represent other people. Of course I can, but I also have the obligation to make sure they speak for themselves. It it was very well received by many of the parents in the audience. I don't think many of the undergraduates loved it. But I later came to see that I really had been wrong, that today I would have, I first of all would have asked if there was a way for us both to speak. And if not, I probably would have just said, look, I really think the student should be able to choose. But it was a complicated situation in terms of of, uh, the president had, had asked me. But I think this issue of, of power, right? I I am a white affluent woman and I hold power and some portion of my power flows from that fact. And so my job now is often at least to share power and equally to get out of the way. That doesn't mean I'm prepared to leave the stage and this is complicated for a lot of women like me, but I would never give a speech like that today. <laughs> Just never. I I would say I need to listen and hear uh, what other people think and let them speak for themselves. And we'll never have a really strong democracy unless we at least understand more, much more about the people that all of us have to represent, given that somebody has to be elected. Yes, I wonder how much of it is you talk about the differences experienced by race and class and so on, but it strikes me a lot of it's generational too. Mm-hmm. And I really I noticed this when I talked to you know, feminists of different generations. So I gathered, you know, I work with Belle Sawhill. In fact, she's yes. the person that brought me into to Brookings <laughs> and so on. And you know, she's someone who literally started in the typing pool because that's what she was told to do, and then thought, figured out, then realized her husband had a better job than her, so figured out <laughs> she had to get a PhD in economics and ended up doing it. But the difference between sort of Bell's brand of feminism and that kind of, of the younger women, even allowing for class uh, and race, it seems like there, there was a generation of women who were really excited by the idea of Hillary Clinton, mm-hmm. your, your old boss and so on, because just it was such an important first, and it is clearly just, for me, it's just embarrassing we haven't had a woman president rather than a source of celebration when we get one. It's just, and the longer it goes on, the more embarrassing it gets. But, exactly. but, there's a bunch, but for younger women, actually, they really, didn't, they really didn't feel that at all. They didn't get this sense of it was about getting one woman into kind of one place at all. And I think that's partly because they, they haven't had the experience that you've had and certainly the bell had of another generation up of really having really having to break some glass ceilings. And it's very hard to say this because you don't in any way want to diminish the challenges that young women can still face. But the world of, you know, the 60% of Brookings RAs now I think are women. The world that they're entering is very different to the world that Alice Rivlin entered or the Bell yes. Sawhill entered or even that you entered. And, and they don't know that and they shouldn't be expected to know that. And so in some ways they're fighting a different fight Whereas you, I think, with it back then at Barnard, were sort of fighting the old, the old battle, 
which was getting women to positions of power, breaking glass ceilings? Or do you now think it's like we've got to fight both both at once? I, I guess I'm asking you what feminism is about right now. Well, a big know, question. So I, the first thing I'd say is they're feminisms, right? There are there yes. really are many different, but I I also think there's a generational thing that happens. So I, when my article came out, there were lots of twenty somethings or younger women in college who just dismissed it. Right? It was like, oh, you know, we fixed it all. But I remember. My generation in the 1980s, because when I graduated from law school, it was already one third women, which would, had, would have been unimaginable uh, for the women 10 years ahead of me. And many of us married, you know, men with careers and we had careers. And we thought also we've, we've got this worked out. We're fine now. And then you have children. And then suddenly all these choices have to be made. And that's where so many of the stereotypes suddenly hold. So I think even to, to many of the young women today who think they've got it figured out, I heard from many women later say, saying just that, you know, I didn't take your article seriously when I read it. And now I'm in my early 30s and I've got kids. And let me tell you, my workplace won't let me do this. My husband's workplace won't let or my spouse's workplace won't, won't let him or, or her take time on. Off. Um, you know, so so part of it, I think every generation discovers just how far we still have to go, even as they start from a place that really does reflect how far we've come. Uh, there's part of that. I do also think, though, and it goes back to what we were saying before, that my generation was all about career feminism. And there were care feminists, but they were marginalized. They were a relatively small group of women who focused on child care and paid family leave. But it was, it was a very uh, distinct group. And the mainstream feminism was the Gloria Steinem through to Sheryl Sandberg. Uh, and, and I would have counted myself as part of that where power lies in being like men and being powerful. Now I think younger women really understand that they're not going to have the lives they hope to have without paying much more attention to care. And frankly, I think a lot of younger men understand that and also think that they also deserve to be able to to be fully present parents. And I don't think that was true of the men in my generation, my husband has been completely, but I don't not sure he would have uh, thought that that was the path he was going to follow. Yeah, I think I'm, I can't remember who wrote this book now, but it was um, a British feminist, I think, who was who did a really good accounting of the costs of the benefits of women being economically yes. in the labour market, yes. and, and I think that was almost like it was. Uh, almost unsayable especially on the kind of center left to re- admit that there were costs actually you had people yes. on the right so you had people on the right saying it yes um yes. of course they were like sometimes it felt like that was all they said but but a kind of honest recognition of the fact that like if if mothers and fathers are both in you know full-time work from the time every child turns two weeks old or something then something's been lost yes a price is being paid not least by the children and so a recognition of that cost and therefore the trade-offs around that cost it it seems animates a lot of your work actually i wanted to ask you about men it's a good time to do that because um you've talked a lot about the changing roles of of women in your work um but you've also talked quite a bit about 
about men and that's obviously that's an area that i'm working in now too and you had this this is not in your book this is in an interview that you did where you talked about the he for she movement mm-hmm. and i don't know if you remember what you said you said um I, i'm all for he for she but i think we need he for he <laughs> i think we need men to be actually in favor of them and doing their own their own thing and you also say in the book, you, you talk about the need to kind of revise uh, our views about masculinity. And I'm trying to I see if I've got the, I'm not sure I've got the quote here, but it's something like, you know, the old idea of cowboys and individualists, and we need to oh, yes. reinvent, mas- reinvent masculinity as well. And so I'd love to kind of get, get to date with where your current thinking is on both the differences between men and women, to the extent that you think there are them, and where where you think we need to go now in terms of a he for he movement. Because I, I, I think I've put that in my book because it's, it's such an important distinction, I think. Too much of the feminist movement has been about making men better feminists, better allies, right? Being on our side, get, you know, et cetera. And not enough about, well, what does it mean to be a, a successful and flourishing man now, especially given the extraordinary gains that kind of women have made? It has sharp questions are being asked about what it means to be a man now as a result of these changes, but not many people present company accepted are actually taking them seriously. So say a bit more about what you meant by, because it's quite a provocative thing, he for he rather than he for she. Yeah, I remember that interview and I I said it and I still think it that Mm. he for she, which is great, uh, is, is analogous to, um, you know, thinking about if I'm a white ally um, for African Americans to, to be you know, more like whites, right? As opposed to actually saying, "Look, men are losing out here," and that's the point about valuing our whole human selves. Many men wrote to me after my article came out and said, "Look, I want to go home and coach my kids." you know, soccer team. I want to be at the parent-teacher conference, but I cannot be because I'm in a gender straitjacket, even if it's one that's more privileged than the the woman who had to depend on the man completely financially, et cetera. I, I am living out a prescribed gender role. And when I try to break out of that role, my very masculinity is questioned. So that at least if a woman does it, she's not going to be told she's less of a woman. She may be told that she's let down the side in terms of expectations that her teachers or parents had. And I, I think it more broadly, the question of what is masculine, what is a, a, what should boys aspire to, to be good men? And it's, it's interesting, you know, we almost inevitably almost said it's strong men, right? There's mm. this, this notion of male strength and protectiveness. And I do think there are differences between men and women, absolutely. But we know empirically that there are more differences among women and among men, at least gener- if you generalize across, than there are clear differences between men and women. We know that little boys run around a lot more than little girls and their brains do develop differently and they, they learn to speak differently. But beyond that, very hard uh, to, to have any of those differences hold up. All the men, though, in my life, and I have two brothers, two sons, husband, father, <laughs> I'm dying for granddaughters if and when that time comes, not anytime real soon. But... Um, I just think men's emotional lives have been sheared away. And 
they may express those emotions differently, but I've never seen a man who didn't respond to a child needing them in just the way as a woman I do. It is wonderful to have a child call for you and for a child to think you're going to fix it and to be, you know, the summum bonum of that child's existence for a brief time. And then they, they, they hit adolescence. I just don't believe that men don't, don't, um, thrilled to that. And all the men that I have, that I've seen who are deeply engaged with their children love that. And they love the sense of competence that comes with knowing how to care for a child. It's not like I'm, I'm terribly undomestic. I can't do anything with my hands. And yet, you know, that sense of I've got this, you know, and my husband loved it also. He was really good with the kids and he knew what to do as opposed to feeling, kind of diminished like you know mm. we've got this this when, when a child cries and the women run to him the father can sue that child just as well and the father becomes the the helper actually I, yes as i said i'm thinking quite a lot about this and I, I actually think the role of i think fatherhood really sits at the center of what's required in terms of a a new what i call a kind of pro a pro-social masculinity ah. for a post post-feminist age so i can argue that it. it's really post <laughs> but but and i and I, I think there's a lot of things there and i you know there are some differences and um, but i think that i think there's been a decoupling to some extent of the role of kind of father and uh, provider which used to be pretty much kind of you know the idea of kind of husband bread husband and yes. father and so there was quite an indirect relationship with children quite often you know so mom had the kids dad was there and obviously this is an exaggeration but but there was something to that and one of the reasons why we had that wave of feminism was to break women free of the economic dependency on men so that they had more choice about that but the result of that is to ask really hard questions about fatherhood and mm-hmm. and actually I, I i actually i'm quite struck by the fact that we need we need models of fatherhood that can can exist in different kinds of family. Exactly. So in some in some ways, I think you know, I think feminism, to some extent, freed women from marriage in the sort of Steinem way. But we now need to free fatherhood from marriage, too, uh, and have it as a separate and independent social institution rather than one. Because the social conservatives will say you can only have fatherhood fathers if they're you know with the mother, and some feminists will say we don't need fathers. Yes, we can do fine without them. Thank you very much. And but I think there's some middle ground here, and I do think that, one, that you mentioned adolescence. And I just want to run this idea past you. My sense, looking at the data, is that the fact that women are with really young children more is a real preference. I, I, I used to think that it was probably mostly socialized, you know, socialization. I've really changed my view on that now. As I look around the world and I look at surveys and look at, I look at people's decisions, I do think that when it's really young, most of the surveys are about young children, right? So I think like a six-month-old, even like a one-year-old, I, I'm, I'm of the view now that there's something going on there that makes everything else equal mothers more likely to want to be with them at that age. But I, I think the problem is if you then assume that means they're in it for 20 years. <laughs> right and that they're still doing the dentist appointments 10 years later you know and i think if anything dads might if I, I might to the extent there are differences dads might come into their own a little bit more as the kids get older um uh, and i think there's some evidence for that but i'd just like to i'd love to know how you respond to the idea that you could have more you could kind of have an equal contribution but it doesn't have to be at the same time so you could have like asynchronous symmetry if you like mm, that's a tricky one <sighs> Or do you think it is just socialization well, that makes making to know. women I mean, wanting to be with babies? Yeah, but we also do know that when men are exposed to infants, 
they have hormonal changes that are not exactly the same uh, as with women, but they are analogous. At least we know this through lab studies. So some of what we may be seeing may simply be that it is, it is when the mother is still breastfeeding, it's those very early days that the husband, the, it's often the mother and her, and her mother, right? The grandmother shows up, the child is born, the man has to go back to work pretty quickly, the father, and so baby world is a very feminine world. But certainly if you think of all the gay couples that I know who are deeply engaged with their children, um, or of course, single fathers who similarly, you know, ha- have their kids. I'm not convinced uh, that there isn't an equal um, connection. In my case, I took the first six months off. We were both professors. So I had a semester and then he had a semester and there was little difference Um that just was, and he, and again, he really loved being able to be, to be that competent. Now, partly I didn't breastfeed the whole time. So, you know, he, he had a bottle. I mean, they're, they're, they're sort of practicalities. That said, well, and the other thing I would add is we know so much about how babies' brains develop and zero to three and zero to five are vital. So I'd hate to think that I was principally in charge of the development of my child's synapses, right? I really You don't want to be the only one. I don't want to be the only one. And and again, if you do think, you know, different people parent differently and there are gender differences there too, but I'd hate to think that our children only got me for those first five years uh, and then handed handed off. But I will say I think historically it's it's something I've looked into where, yes, women were sort of the dominant force in a child's life, but often till only four or five. And at that point, particularly for boys, they then headed off into the masculine world. So this notion that that we've had since sort of the industrial age, that it's all the way through to 18. That was never true. Uh, And in agricultural communities, you know, the boys were out working with their fathers and the girls with their mothers. Again, I'm sure there were lots of little girls who were frustrated and wanted to be out with their dads and and vice versa. Um, But at least it was a, everybody was engaged in the rearing of children after a certain age. Yeah, the, the co-parent. You're right. The co-parenting thing is actually the norm yep. um, throughout human history. But I, I would, I would probably emphasize more than you some of those differences in in the early years and the different role. And, and just because you just keep seeing people voting with their feet to some extent around that. And I, I worry that at a certain point we have to sort of just respect the choices people are making. And and I think this is back to your point about the distributions overlapping rather than. They, distributions can be different but also overlapping and it doesn't mean at all that men can't do it i mean I'm, you know re- recently we've had pete Buttigieg taking yes. paternity leave and getting right. to San Francisco. you know my my guess is that they're amazing parents and that, you know if you if, if you've been one of the chosen children of you know, pete Buttigieg and his husband then <laughs> you're probably among the luckiest children in the history of humanity honestly right um so it's not yeah. they can't it's just that everything else everything else equal i think we might see some different patterns and, and i and we've got to I hope we can get to a point where we can be just a little bit more relaxed about, like the the colleague I talked about earlier, the uh, young black woman. Like if she takes yes, time out because she wants to be with her babies, that is fine. It's not like we're not going to say, well, "Why isn't your husband doing it?" or "Why are you letting the side down?" Right. and so on. Too. Although there is one more piece that's very important, and it goes back to mis- masculinity, which is in most cases the father's out earning the mother. 
So if somebody has to be home, it's going to be the mother because you need more of the income. So in our family's case, I'm the principal breadwinner. And if ever, I mean, my husband is a, a, a an important breadwinner, but I make more money than he does. And back to your point about masculinity, he wrote in his Atlantic article that the fastest way to bring a silence at a dinner party conversation is to say that, you know, to say my wife out earns me there. We still have really deep notions that, you know, a real man doesn't you know, earn less than his wife. And so, so the other question you have to ask is what would that choice look like if the distribution of earnings were equal and maybe it would be serial, right? Like I take six months, you hmm. take six months, I take a year, you take a year. But I think we have to factor the economics into that. Yeah, that's right. And of course, we have made huge progress on that. I mean, the, you know, 40, 40% of women now earn more than the median man. So yeah. the, the, the distributions are overlapping much more tightly than they were. We're obviously not at a parity at the median, but you're right. And it's interesting when you look at single, when you look at um, same-sex couples, yep. and particularly the best data is on uh, women who are much more likely to have children than, than gay men, where there is this kind of turn-taking thing. And what you see is that you know, there's a labor market hit, right? The idea right. that you can have children and not get hit, hit in the labor market is back to the era that we... <laughs> talked yeah. about earlier like, <laughs> duh um right. but it, but if it's the same if it's the same person taking the hit all the time uh over the course of child's life then you end up with this massive lifelong gap whereas so in that sense i think these lesbian couples are really interesting and actually they it, it looks like the earnings hit is similar in a same-sex lesbian couple as in a, stra- a straight couple um for one child but then of course when you hit child number two th- they could look completely different because the birth mother Yes, changes in yes. same sex quite often in the same often, sex couple, yes. but but in in a in a straight couple, the birth mother is always the mother. Yes. Um, so or the <laughs> yeah. birthing person. Um, yes. So yes. so the women Very always get complicated. Hit. But the, this the spirit of this conversation leads me to the next uh, bit of your book I found so interesting, which is this idea of renewal. Mm. Um. And, I th- and it leads me to that because I think it's kind of sense of, of, of give and take a little bit and keeping the good um, uh, as well as kind of recognizing the bad. And I think that's true in, our, in conversations about families and care and gender. And it's also true around kind of race and so on, too. And I'm actually just going to read a little bit from your book and then ask oh. you to say a bit more about renewal and, uh, and why you've chosen this. You said renewal is more forgiving than reinvention. Renewal demands the searing heat of honesty, yet finds something positive to renew. On a national level, this element of renewal may be the hardest pill to swallow for the many Americans who are deeply angry about the persistent, entrenched, and all too often deliberate inequalities that track lines of race, color, class, creed, gender, and sexual orientation in this country. So I'm, that's a striking and sometimes a kind of courageous thing to say because you're, you're saying, look, we can hold two thoughts in the head at the same time here. There is good stuff. Um, we've got to recognize the good that's there along the bad. And that seems to be how you're differing it from reinvention, if I'm understanding it correctly. Um, could you say a bit more about that and what your what experience you've had from people as you've made that argument to them? Because you, you do put the other side of it quite well. <laughs> so you, you definitely honed in on the core uh, concept of the argument. And yes, to some people, a, a problematic dimension. But yes, I say that renewal is in between restoration and reinvention uh, because it, it is this, the word itself 
is to make something new again, right? Something existed, it was new once, and now you are making it new again, as opposed to reinvention, where yes, there was something there, but you're, you're just, you're, that thing goes away completely and you're completely new. And Americans in particular love the idea that we can have a whole new you, that there's not going to be any relationship to that old you. And <laughs> I think that's ridiculous. Certainly at my age, I think it's ridiculous. But also, why would we want to cut ourselves off from our lived experience? You know, we're, I think of myself often as a tree that has been shaped, you know, by the wind, the rain, the soil, all those things. That's your, your life. Uh, and I think you, you have, I think there are all sorts of problems with cutting yourself off from it. So I do think that the idea of making something new again means you have to look back. You have to look back and, and see what was. You have to be, I say, radically honest, brutally honest, just as honest as you can be about the things that were, that were not good. You know, in my own uh, journey, I talk about, you know, looking at mistakes and then seeing larger patterns that really are flaws, right? Or, or traits or ways of behaving that need to be changed and facing that and not trying to hide. But then if you're going to change, and this is kind of therapy 101, self-hatred does not breed transformation. You, you have to find good things that you can hang on to. Now, obviously, a person and a country are not the same, but I think there is a strong analogy that if we are going to make, our, I say, our commitment to our ideals, the ideals that are set forth in at least some of our founding documents, we're going to make that commitment new again, like a, like a renewal of vows, then you have to be absolutely honest about how we have betrayed those ideals in the past. But yes, I am not prepared as an American to throw out all the things that I learned about this country and that I believe, uh, a, a, you know, the narrative of a revolution that was for freedom in part, even as it was so deeply betrayed, right? That, you know, Thomas Jefferson mm. is enslaving people even as he's writing those words. I understand it, but I also understand that Jefferson created something new in the world, something that inspired not only many people around the world, but our own greatest reformers. So I talk a lot about Frederick Douglass or Martin Luther King, or Susan B. Anthony, many, many, many of our greatest reformers believing enough of our of our history of our narrative to believe there could be change and that is i do think hard i i think it's it's very hard to see thomas jefferson as both the author of the declaration of independence and uh, an enslaver at the same time and yet you know i'm a person with many strengths and many weaknesses and they right. coexist yeah there's a it, it's complicated yeah. uh, as as i think you you say but i also you you wonder if so if let's let's caricature two positions but i think they're in some ways not equally dangerous but dangerous one would be we're going to talk about our history in a way that sort of minimizes it's the bad side of it so right. we're going to do the like you talk about the bicentenary it's the tall ships and it's columbus and it's yeah there were the, there were these issues with racism and slavery but 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 broadly 
aren't we awesome? Right. So there's that, which kind of, yes. but there is an alternative danger, I guess, which is to do the opposite, which is to make our history only about those things. Yes. Um, and to make Jefferson only an owner of slaves and Washington and everybody else too, and to sort of wipe out the other bit of history too. And so it feels like sometimes there's a contest between two sets of people who are just trying to sort of minimize one side of our history when that makes no more sense than me trying to tell the story of my life, which only talks about the awesome bits and or only talks about the terrible. We all have biographies, which can you imagine someone writing your biography where they only ha- did the bad bits? <laughs> right. <And> then, <laughs> well, then I should have been bad in much more interesting ways. <laughs> That's um, true. But you know, there's actually a parallel here um, with the way why why women still can't have it all was received because many, many, many women were just deeply grateful because I had voiced something that was their lived experience. Many of my cohort, my fellow feminists, my fellow career women were very upset and they were upset, not because they thought what I said wasn't true. They knew it was true, but they said, you cannot say this now. You are going to undo the very progress we have made. You are going to confirm stereotypes about women who leave jobs to be with their families and similarly, I think my friends on the left who are, are most insistent that Americans face genocide, crimes against humanity, owning other human beings in unspeakable and really unspeakable ways, those ways must be spoken. And if they are not willing to recognize the good, it's because you have to be that extreme for us to see the bad. And I do accept that. I, I think there's a r- role for both. Um, but I also think, again, for us to be still in one country, for us to have a common vision of the future, for us to educate our children in the way that, that we want to, that, that gives them pride, and, and all children pride, as well as awareness, the two things have to coexist. And actually, what I hope is that we can be a country that can handle that complexity, right? It takes maturity, it takes uh, strength and courage to be able to see both. But I do understand the folks who say, you're already, you know, we're just getting started and you're already (laughs) saying, hey, where's the good stuff too? Um, But I think that voice needs to be there. But if you don't have it, if you... If, if you don't have it at all, then you do wonder, like, what's the destination? Yes. If we just sort of, like, where are we going with this? Like, what's the goal here? And you, and you nicely throw it forward to the 20, you know, to 250th uh, anniversary. Uh, and actually, I guess what you're, you know, you're saying we need 1776 and we need 1619, yes. just as people need uh, to be able to do both. But it does, it does require grace. And you have this lovely chapter on 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 grace, and you also you describe yourself as a person of faith, but but not of a particular religion. Which yes. there's a whole other a whole other conversation <laughs> about that because I, I I I sometimes describe myself. You know, people say they're spiritual but not religious. I sometimes yes. say I'm I'm the other way around, and that you need the you need you know the, the religion is more important than spirituality. But that's a different that's a that's a kind of different conversation. But but you do you do talk about the need for grace both at a sort of national level and a kind of civic level. But and I think you've just touched on that in some ways. You just describe what. Uh, an approach of grace would look like which is a combination of that humility but also hope 
Yes. But you also talk about it in the context of, of individuals and you cite, and I can't remember, I actually haven't got the reference here now, but call, this, a woman who writes about calling in yes. rather than calling out. And I think I, I absolutely love that. And you give an example of you saying you, you somebody saying, I think she says this, she misgendered someone in a yes. classroom and they just said, well, I misgender myself all the time. But it was the moment of fear that she had. And yeah. I think you talk about some of your own experiences too. But you say something, and here I am kind of quoting you again, where you say, we, this really resonated with me. We find it so easy to think the worst of one another quickly and furiously. Perhaps grace can allow us to find a balance between a necessary holding to account and a granting of a little latitude to be human, to stumble and fall short. That does feel to be lacking a little bit sometimes now, this presumption of goodwill, this this balance between holding to account. And you had your own experience of that, I think, too, where you know, we, just, we all screw up. Yeah. Right? We just, <laughs> yes. And we screw up sometimes in ways that are like, and I remember I said something to a colleague of mine. I won't tell you kind of what it was, but I said something. And then I said it to him, he's a Jewish colleague. And I said, is that anti-Semitic? And he said, yeah, actually it is. And I, and I said, I'm really sorry. I'm so sorry. And he said, no, get it. We're good now. Yeah. But it was that exactly that moment of grace you kind of talked about. He, and he's an incredibly close colleague and a dear friend. And so he didn't think that because I, and it was a mistake. I just kind of said something. He didn't immediately, I wasn't hung, drawn and quartered. And I think you're talking here about the fact that sometimes we do call out rather than call in. Yes. And the woman right. who talks about calling in is Loretta Ross, uh, yes. who is a human rights activist and a professor. And she has the, a whole philosophy of calling in, calling in with love. Right, to to teach rather than to to sanction, and so often when we respond with ruling people out of the moral community or simply getting offended, you're missing, you're losing that teachable moment where someone made a mistake. Often, as in the story you just told, you realized as soon as you said it that maybe. This had been uh, a hurtful thing to say, an anti-Semitic thing to say, and you caught yourself. But let's assume you hadn't. You know, the the person you were talking to should have been able to say something like, I'm certain you didn't mean it this way, but here's how I hear it. And that would have taught you what it is like to be uh, experiencing this from another side. I, I I have learned so much where things that I would say or do just never dawned on me that somebody else would take them that way. Uh, Maybe they should have, but they didn't. And so you do, I do think we need to give people space to learn. And again, as you say, you know, to err is human, right? There are no perfect people. So all of us need, I think, to to get that grace and be able to give it uh, at least some of the time uh, in in terms of, of being able to, to live in a far more plural society than white Americans anyway have, have experienced. Yes, because what you don't want is to have a situation where people are so fearful of saying the wrong thing or doing yes. the wrong thing that they effectively just, just, just don't say anything. Um, and then you lose some of the, the give and take. And I know, again, obvious criticism, easy for you to say this, white man, um, and so on. But I do, I do think that we, again, back to this counting the cost as well as the benefit too. And I'm thinking actually I had Martha Nussbaum on um, ah. quite a while ago. It's terrific. And she, she, talks, she talks very well about the, the distinction between I'll use my language, not hers, but kind of, you know, an unwanted advance and harassment. 
Yes. And and the difference is repetition. Yes. Right. Exactly. The difference the difference is right, so someone makes an unwanted advance and is told very clearly, nope, sorry, not interested. Right. right. If they then go away and they get it, so I'm sorry, mis- misread the cues, they go away, right? That's not harassment, right? right. It's embarrassing and it's difficult, but it's not harassment. If he, I assume it's he, for the, if he comes back and does it again, that's, that's harassment. That's and, harassment, And it's yes. sort of like, there's an, there's, this is analogous, isn't it? It's like once once is a mistake, repeated is, is more than that. But yes, it feels like, and you had, you've, you know, you've had some experiences of this yourself where you've only discovered later that it was a mistake. And so we also need to create permission somehow for people to kind of call us out. And I don't or call us in rather right. <laughs> to call us right. in. But the other thing that she says is that you do it privately, not publicly. Yes. That's that's critical distinction, isn't it? It is. It is. And I will say here, because I'm I'm mindful that um some of my African American friends would say Look, it's not up to us to educate you, right? You know, we do an awful lot of work as it is just being who we are in our skins. And now we're supposed to teach you how to be sensitive. You can go do the work. And I'm mindful of that. I think that is correct. But I I think that can coexist with if you're doing the work and if you're trying and you make a mistake or you ask a question, I just, I don't think that's too, too uh, big uh, uh, a burden uh, to, to put. Um, now I've forgotten your question. <laughs> yeah, no, no I, it was, uh, you were just discussing how the work that's done by you know many um black americans can quite rightly say that we do enough work already but my question was creating a culture and i think you've this is one of the things you learn oh yes you, how do you create a culture where people can hold you to account in a way that's not too burdensome to them it's like how do you how do you give like the exchange i had and you like right, was just like there was permission given um right. now that was a right. peer-to-peer thing but it's tougher when like, i i remember like another colleague of mine in fact it was the same colleague i referred to earlier where she's she accused me of toxic positivity and she <laughs> did it with a smile and i was like what are you talking about and I, and, and I said what are you on about and she explained explained to me what it was and i said oh my god that's exactly what i'm doing uh, that um, one i've not heard <laughs> but but you were also asking about the doing it privately rather than publicly yeah. and i do think that is key because humiliation is rarely a good teacher, or if it is, it'll teach you something. You will not do something again, but you will not learn in a way that, that allows you to grow, right? You'll close off. You, you remember it as something very painful, traumatic, and to be called out publicly, particularly on social media, pretty much guarantees you'll stop having the conversation. And as you said, and I'm very aware now that you'll be at a meeting and everybody will say exactly what they think is expected of them to say. This is also true in in trainings and things. And then afterward, when people break into their little groups, whether those are, you know, African-American groups or women or men or young, younger staff and older staff, then they will say things that are very different. And we'll never be in a world where the private and the public are identical. People will always say things different privately. But we need to be in a world where at least 50% of those conversations are the same. Otherwise, we're not actually hearing what people think. And I do think that if you knew that you were safer, if you had that psychological safety to try to say something, even if it's very clumsy, um, and 
you wouldn't get called out publicly or you might get called in very lovingly, but you wouldn't get called out. Uh, I think that would be better. I definitely do. And I think a lot of people could learn from that with, with goodwill. Yeah, you're right. And we spent quite a bit of time trying to create cultures in which people who are from disadvantaged backgrounds can can rightly hold other people to account. We yes. need to do more on that. But we also, I think, I've done quite a bit of work on the idea of respect as the basis for much of this. And, you know, this um, this idea of looking someone in the eye yes. as being a measure a measure of respect, actually. And, you know, I have this whole huh. uh, riff, riff about that because if you think about it when – when you think about eye contact, you know, look me in the eye and say that, you know, how you're supposed to bow, oh, look down and how, yes. and how kind of, particularly if you're black in America, you know, in fact, I you know, quoted this before, but um, the last thing Emmett Till's mother said to him, Mama Till said to him before he went to Mississippi was don't look the white folks in the eye. Yeah. Emmett. Yeah. Because to look someone in the eye is an assertion of moral equality. Yes. And so I do think it's something about like you eye to eye. And I also do think we need to respect everybody enough to be able to criticize them mm. in a way that's positive. And so I had this conversation with a colleague too, where it was after a seminar where a, a scholar of color had given a presentation. And I said, you know, a bunch of the white scholars afterwards gathered in the corridor and said, well, I didn't like to say anything, but, yes. you know, their whole identification strategy is completely broken. And obviously you can't draw those concerns. And so they had another seminar exactly. where they actually subjected the person who wouldn't do it. And she said, well, it's so interesting because there was a conversation among the black scholars after saying that was kind of a weird conversation. Did anybody feel like that wasn't really real and we weren't being treated properly? I said, okay, we've got to find a way to... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's exactly your point. Like, but I do worry that, like, actually... You, if you don't feel like you can can positively give give positive feedback, give this great thing. I think you say in the new, one of New America's missions is we can take it. Yes, it's right? one Which of our idea of welcoming <laughs> criticism. Exactly. So that, that's about welcoming criticism. Right? Yes, yes, it's a, you know positive feedback, uh, constructive criticism, all of that. But it is it's it's saying uh, that we are strong enough to hear criticism uh, that will make us grow. And honestly, I think it's best to try to create a culture where you ask for feedback. Uh, my president, whom I hired back in February, one of the reasons I hired him was that after he gave his kind of job talk to the assembled directors of New America, uh, he and I talked afterward. And the first thing he said was, so how'd I do? And please tell me honestly. And I said, well, you were too corporate and too long, but there was a lot of good stuff. And that immediately <laughs> forged a relationship where I, I thought, really highly of the fact that he had asked because it had had some problems. Uh, and he then took my my feedback in a way that let me know this is going to be somebody where I will not have to either baby him or sugarcoat things. I'm not going to be rude, uh, but I expect the same. You know, I expect that he will also tell me. And that's a, a culture where you ask for it. It really opens the door then uh, to much more honest conversation. Yeah, uh, thank thank you. I, that's a great that's a great example uh, of what you write a lot about in the book. And the last thing I, I want to ask you about is an an, uh, an interesting but small section of your book hmm. on the menopause. The menopause. Ah. <laughs> um, and this stood out. This stood out to me. I'll tell you why. Partly because I'm studying a little bit of early 
church history at the moment for complicated reasons. But but the role of postmenopausal women in mm. the early church, this is in the Christian church, was huge. There yeah. were deaconesses. They had this massive role. And you talk here about the kind of role of women, and I think you're probably speaking to some of that same historical literature about transmitters of culture. And, and that was really the role of these yes. kind of older women was that yes. they were kind of teachers and, and passed it on. And so, but you make this really strong argument for this as a – uh, an important phase of women's lives. You make it quite back to personal is political, almost where yes. we started. <laughs> what What's the claim, and also why did you why did you take the quite courageous decision? I think to write about it publicly. Huh. Uh, it's funny. I didn't think it was particularly courageous. Uh, I well, partly because I'm making the case in the book that although I think it's a book for everyone. I think women have a particular role to play in the change we need in our society for a number of reasons. And that I recognize um, there again, all women know, you know, women who are, are make, barely making a living, living women who are in the midst of child rearing or caring for their own parents, probably not. But that traditionally, Postmenopausal women have had a, a very powerful role, and I actually cite um, Susan B. Anthony talking about, you know, now we're you, you don't even begin to reach your prime till you're fifty. With this notion that once you get uh, repro- reproductivity out of the way, then you can be very, very productive. Um, you have this but, great line: high, <laughs> high, re- high productivity, zero reproductivity. Exactly, it's great. Exactly. Yeah. So I think this is actually something that a lot of people have studied because evolutionarily there is no reason for women to hang around after they can't produce babies. Men, of course, can inseminate till whenever, uh, but women can't, and they so evolutionarily it's that you are what's called an allo parent you can you are a grandmother you can help you can enable your daughter or your son-in-law to go get more food if you're taking care of the children but that also and you see this with elephants as well yes you are carriers uh, of culture and i want to suggest that in a world in which genders are treated equally and we aren't worried about how attractive we are to men, that there's this period of time that is really quite wonderful where you you have your uh, capability, you know, you feel strong, you feel wise because you have lived a long time and you've learned a lot and made lots of mistakes. Uh, you can mentor younger people, but you still have the energy to make things happen in the world. So, uh, and I, you know, I quote a number of other scholars and there's a book by Susan Mattern called Slow Moon mm. Rising that is all about menopause. And of course, menopause has been one of these words that, ah, you know, like periods, that's we live in a male dominated society. If women ran the world, you know, you might not ever talk about a prostate, but you would have no problem talking about menopause. <laughs> that's, a, that's a great counter, I will say. So I think that's why I probably thought that it was brave was to sort of talk about one's own one's own cycle. But that's maybe me bringing kind of the male gaze yeah. to it. But I, w- but I w- but I will but I will say that um, it really resonated with me and a lot of the the women uh, that I know in, in my life, kind of within my own family and and kind of more broadly. I think it's just particularly I think with the rise in health and so on. Yeah. That the combination of sort of you call it phase three, yeah. I think, as opposed to phase three from Matten's book, but of if you're if you're lucky enough to be in good health and you're lucky enough to have some economic security, that these women from their kind of fifties onwards are just 
kicking it. I yes. mean, just absolutely killing it, starting businesses <laughs> doing stuff, in in a <laughs> way that I think was this. good. Uh, yeah. Yes, could yeah. could be could have been president in a different world, but yeah, it's just this, and it is a completely different way of thinking. But again, and you do this repeatedly, I think, in your book, which is to draw on history and to say that some of these attitudes we've had about gender and work and so on are quite new. Yes. Actually. And you're tapping into a more ancient wisdom uh, around this. It's like, we didn't just throw menopausal women on the uh, uh, post-menopausal women on the heap, right? They were. (laughs) They they play very important roles. (laughs) Very important roles. Hugely, as I said, particularly kind of, you know, within uh, the state. So what's next for you? Uh, Do you, what's what's on your agenda now? What's next for me is to make renewal more than a book, right? There's an entire part of the books or the second half that is less personal, although still personal, Mm -hmm. Uh, where I talk about the kind of really big changes that I think we need to make as a society, sort of moving toward a multi-party democracy, uh, enabling a whole new generation of entrepreneurs by creating an infrastructure of care, but also enough security to uh, enable people to take risks, uh, and thinking about uh, an economy that focuses on mutual flourishing. Uh, again, people who are whole people, who are competitive and caring, and and that we would we would design a society and an economy for for whole people, and those are all areas New America is working. I am also mm-hmm. deeply involved in preparing for 2026. I'm working with a group of people called Us at 2026. I think this moment where we move from our first quarter millennium to our second quarter millennium as a country is a big deal. And this moment where we're on the cusp between being a white majority nation and a plurality nation is critical. So I hope to spend the next five years, at least uh, between now and 2026, the end of 2026, working to try to bring as many of those things about as I can and to have not just a national conversation around 2026, but part reckoning just as we started our conversation, definitely part reckoning and real reckoning. So I say instead of the tall ships coming to New York and Boston harbors, we should have uh, ships coming to all the places where where enslaved men and women and children uh, were, were ferried, were, who disembarked. And we should remember that our ports and the ships that came to our ports brought not only voluntary immigrants, but involuntary uh, enslaved people. Uh, so we need a reckoning. We need a catalyst for change. And we need, and I would end here, we have to have a positive vision of, of who we are as a country and what we can achieve, even as that vision includes the courage to be radically honest and to repair, I hope, uh, to, to look uh, the descendants, anyway, of enslaved people or indigenous Americans or so many other Americans who've also uh, been oppressed, their ancestors, and say, yes, you know, we did you wrong. Uh, and we will repair that, the we who are here now, as best we can. But we still have a lot to be proud of and to achieve uh, as a country. Yeah. So what the, uh, your description uh, of both the big bold bets or that you you <laughs> describe reforming our, um which we didn't really get into but i'd love to talk more about but i think the the striking tone of it is a sort of unf- unflinching optimism 
humility, but there's a kind of there is a, there's an irreducible optimism uh, about your work, um, along with the humility and your description of 2026, which I honestly hadn't even thought about because I think we're all mired in the moment. Was ve- made me made me quite proud to be an American as a new American, um, and I would count like you. I would count myself as a patriot with all of the necessary caveats that word yep. now brings. So it was, it was a compelling and exciting vision. So and again, very personal as well as political to to I think we end with. So Anne-Marie, thank you so much for joining me. Richard, it's just been a pleasure. I so admire your work and it's always a pleasure to be in great conversation. Thanks for listening to Dialogues. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. And if you did, please take a moment to follow, like, rate and share the podcast in all the usual places. And send me your thoughts and ideas, including for future guests, to dialoguespod at gmail.com. That's dialoguespod at gmail.com. I'll see you next time.